You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me in Southampton, England is Jonathan Havercroft. And Jonathan, botcher time is here. He finally won. He did. He avoided He avoided the, the bilzing. He avoided the bilzing. I couldn't think, I asked the group chat before the final they could think of anyone who'd lost three finals in a row and then won on the fourth try. The Eagles, but that's NFC championships, not Super Bowls, obviously. But the Eagles made three NFC championships and lost them and then won the fourth and then lost the Super Bowl to Tom Brady. Yeah. Last year, I went to bed convinced Botcher was going to win and they lost. And this year, I thought they're going to lose again. I thought they were going to get Bills. I don't know why, but. I just thought that. Probably because they were playing Cooey. Because <laughs> they were playing Cooey. They figured out how to beat Cooey, which is don't leave him a shot. Yes. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. All you have to do is leave absolutely no shot to where it takes the final minute and 12 seconds on his clock for him to look at it. And then he concedes. That's how you beat Kevin Cooey. Yeah. Yeah. Now that you say that, I. I'm trying to come up with the last time that I saw Cooey throw the last rock and lose. I don't know. I mean, in the in the round robin game, he had a shot to win. That he almost pulled off that crazy slash, but uh, against Botcher, right? That crazy slash to the hole. He still made it for the tie, but not. Yeah. It wasn't a game winner. Yeah, but I, I mean, and then Botcher had the last the last rock in the extra. But yeah, I don't remember the last time that I saw. Kevin Cooey have a shot with his last rock and throw it and lose. It's a good trivia question. I'm sure it's happened. But yeah, so it is Botcher time. You have been telling me about this guy for like a decade now. Yeah. And now he's finally a Briar champ. Well, now now I'm uh, Ross White time. That's my new my new next next person. You've gone from Botcher time to White time, just like that, huh? Well, it's like I'm, I'm like, who's next? Now Botcher's won. I'm over him. That's it. Well, who's next? Who's next might be Matt Dunstone. That was an impressive performance that he put on in the semifinal because um, I, it really seemed like Dunstone had control of that game for most of it, and then Botcher was able to make just an amazing shot, uh, and it, what cor- uh, in off off of a corner guard to win the game. Not bad, eh? Yeah, I mean he co- he basically cooed Dunstone, so now Dunstone has to learn to not leave Botcher a shot. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll get to your awards later on, but that might be the shot of the week. You're going to hear us give shot of the week to another shot, but that one might that one's probably it. The one that Botcher made in the semifinal. That's that's probably the the memorable one for this Briar for sure because it's a game winner. I, I'm trying to think of the last time I can remember a memorable semifinal game winner was Gee Hemmings draw to the button again against Saskatchewan actually against against Gerald Shimko back in hmm. uh in uh 99 
That was a while ago. So what do we think the future holds for these three playoff teams? Both both the immediate future is in what's going to happen for them at the trials and then overall overall future for these three teams. I well, I think Cooey looks good, I got to say. Like with the addition of John Morris, they looked scary good and, and basically I think they played one or two events in the autumn before full lockdown came back, but they really haven't had a season to gel. So you think the communication will be sorted out? Um, I mean, Cooey's always going to throw with seven seconds left, right? <laughs> I just mean they seem to not—they seem to not be on the same page. And you even had—I mean, they—they they mentioned this on the broadcast that a lot of the conversations were about strategy and not about execution. And that's where they got in trouble. Was the exec was they—they they weren't talking about how to execute the shot. Yeah, I—I I mean, a they. They almost won the Briar, so you know <laughs> they're not that far off. It'd be with, with Kevin. With Kevin Cooey, we're always talking about yeah. like degrees of Cooeyness here. B. They all have won the Briar. C. Three of the four of them have won Olympic trials, so I'm not that worried about figuring it out. And I think I think John Morris, if he has a superpower in curling, it's an ability to parachute into a team and figure out how to win quickly. Um. So I think that team's scary good. Uh, I think Botcher, there's always that case of when a team finally punches through, do they, you kind of saw it with Gushu, right? Like then he just started rattling off Briars in World Championships and kind of, there, there was that weird phase in his career where, you know, he won the trials and actually for a long time just wasn't punching through. And when he finally did, it's kind of like, they were, you know, they have been the dominant team for the last quad, winning three of the last four prior to this. Um, so certainly Botcher is capable of that, and Dunstone's right there. Dunstone's basically where Botcher was two years ago, I'd say. Yeah, and there's about, I think there's four years difference in age between them. Yeah. So it makes sense that Dunstone's getting to this phase about the same time that Botcher started making finals at the Briar. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is the Sean Graham's been on this point for a while that the next big rivalry is probably Dunstone Botcher. That makes sense. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of Borg McEnroe in that rivalry, I think. Who's Borg? Who's McEnroe? Well, Botcher's definitely Bjorn Borg. Okay. And Dunstone yeah. is definitely John McEnroe. I don't think there's any <laughs> that's that's why I brought up the comparison, is it's very clear who is who there. Dunstone needs to wear a headband when he curls, then. He does. Yeah. That'd be good. That'd, that'd be a good fashion statement to bring out the curling with a little headband, I think. Too many baseball caps, not enough headbands. And then I think three years behind Dunstone is tardy, so we'll start... I mean, we're going to start seeing him at the Briar very soon. But you give him give him, give him, him two, three years, he'll start making Briar playoffs. Tardy's got a couple of advantages. He's got basically one... One mega team in that province, right? Jim Cotter has basically, you know, owned that province for the last 10, 15 years, the Laycock Cotter team. So Tardy's, you know, got one team to knock off. He's not in a super deep province, so it's not like he's trying to come out of Manitoba or Alberta. Um, it's the, the challenge is can he put together a team, or does he maybe decide to go play third for a team for a little bit? Try to get a bit of experience out there with a more experienced skip. So I, I'd be curious to see what happens there. 
I guess the other one that's kind of started to make a bit of noise, but hasn't really hasn't punched through the briar yet is, is the Hardy rink out of Alberta, right? They, they kind of thought they should have been invited. I'm not sure they had much of a case, but they, they kind of plugged their case on Twitter a bit. I'm not sure if you saw that, but they're definitely kind I of, mean, them and Karsten Sturmey rinks are kind of the next, the next kind of thing coming up in Alberta. Like I think Alberta's always able to roll out good young teams. And then you have Team Clyder in Saskatchewan too. That's probably the only thing standing between Dunstone and the next however many Briars that he wants. And Colton Flash, right? He's he's back in Saskatchewan, right? So and he's yeah. got he's got a lot of points from his time with Cooey. So he's he'll be able to qualify for a lot of good stuff. So um you know, I think that's that's one thing where it's we're, even with the rise of streaming, it's kind of hard to follow whatever you want to call them, the tier two teams, the young up and coming teams, because they just don't get the same kind of exposure. So aside from clicking through curling zone and seeing the results, it's a, a little dif- a little difficult yeah. to follow some of these teams, but there's there's always a couple of good young teams in their 20s making a climb. Yeah, so it looks like we're going to see, you know, this was our second Botcher Dunstone Briar playoff game. This one was a lot better than the first one, but I imagine we're going to see plenty more, which is fine. That was a heck of a game, huh? Yeah, that was a, that was a great game. You know, is that your game of the week? Probably. I mean, I think I, I think the, the that and the Botcher-Cooey championship round game were the two best games that I saw, and both were riveting. Both had great shot making. Um, the the Dunstone. Dunstone Botcher semi was just tense, right? It was it was a lot of forces. There was you know it wasn't high scoring, but there was always a lot of rocks in play, and there was always the sense that if either team slipped up a bit, the other team was going to pounce and hang a three on them, and and it was kind of just very, very even battle from start to finish. Botcher time has arrived. Dunstone's time may not be far from now, and Cooey may remind us whose time it actually is this fall during the trials. Is that kind of our takeaways here? Yeah, and I think Gushu, I don't want to count him out. I think I think he's you know no. he's won three of the last four. And honestly, in a page format system, they probably squeak into the playoffs and then they they could have made a run too. Mm-hmm. So just the th- the three qualifying meant that a really good team, and unfortunately for Gushu with him. Was gonna was not even gonna make the playoffs this week. So yeah, it's gonna be trials are gonna be fun, and I think I think Gushu's team. I think that the that not having a season and not getting to play together did affect them. But once once they have some time to kind of get back together and get back into the uh, swing of things, you're gonna see just the the deadly rock placement that we're used to seeing from them. Because yeah. they were the most incon of of the the elite elite level teams, they were probably the most inconsistent, and that comes with just not playing. Yeah, I mean it's it's true. I I'd be curious to know how much time everyone was able to get on the ice. That's uh, I, we know that um, they talked a lot in the broadcast about how Dunstone's team was able to to get a rank in Saskatchewan and basically yeah, and Wadena. In Wadena, so that's that was probably an advantage. I'm not sure how many of the other teams were able to do that. I'm not sure if you've seen the post game interviews, but um, uh, Brad Teeson's kind of saying, "I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to get ice time between now and now and Worlds." Mm-hmm. And then uh, 
Darren Molden goes, oh, we can probably get you some ice time. So Yeah, the ice maker <laughs> can probably get them some ice time. Yeah, I think I think a lot of them were able to find ice time, but like, especially with Gushu's team, with being in different provinces, they, it's just not being able to practice together in their case. Uh, practice together, and I, I think match experience, I think that mm-hmm. that matters, right? It's it's not that different from early season where you'll see some weird results in, in kind of those September spiels, right? Where like top teams might get knocked yep. off. So, someone who's a decent, but perhaps not top 10 team makes a, a deep run in an event. Yep. And so, um, you know, I think a little bit of that went on this week. Gushu's team was able to play together with, um, with just bringing in a different, um, junior curler uh, to replace Jeff Walker every week, and they were winning out east, but they they weren't able to play as a foursome. I think that was kind of what kind of what did them in. Yeah, and also I think also the, this format's tough. Like, it's, I think what's what, well, three out of eighteen teams make the make the playoff round. Mm-hmm. That's that's the lowest percentage, right? Because normally it's twenty five percent, four of sixteen. Three mm-hmm. of eighteen is about sixteen percent. So, just your odds of making the playoffs are, are about half as good as what they'd normally be. I guess two thirds as good as what they normally be at a at a Briar. Yep, I did kind of like this format, and you'll talk about it here in just a second when we go through our our awards. I kind of did like the I kind of did like the just having the semi and the final. Yeah, I did too. I I, did, I didn't mind at all. I think it played out well. Any other takeaways here from the No, let's get on to your awards, which we recorded just before the two playoff games. So kind of your regular season awards. Let's hand them out. Just like we did for the Scotties, these are your awards that you created that we're going to to hand out. We're going to look at that for sure. So these are really regular season awards. We're recording this before the playoffs start. So this is kind of like, you know, you're you're only taking into account the regular season when you're handing out like your MVP awards and stuff like that. So taking only into account the pool round robin and the champions pool, we're handing out these awards. And Jonathan, the first award, it is actually one I created and added because I like giving out this award. It's my favorite. It is the people's champ. Yeah, I like that too. So who is the people's champ? Well, to explain it, it's, you know, this was, this was the rock, the rock from the WWE days. He was the people's champ. And it's just, it's the, it's the person that, you know, wins over the crowd, which was yeah. definitely the rock back in the day. So it's the, the person that wins over the crowd. We, I have some nominees you have Colin Hodgson. You know, every everyone loves Colin. Uh, he's uh, he's one of the guys behind Dynasty. He's one of the guys behind the fact that the the uniforms at the Briar and the Scotties actually look good now. Uh, and he's just uh, all in all a, a good guy who interacts with a lot of a lot of the fans on Twitter. So Colin Hodgson probably always going to be a nominee as long as he's in the Briar. Then you have Barbara Wilson, and Barbara Wilson is the fan who finally sent Brendan Botcher some long socks and got him to wear long socks 
during the briar. So thank you to Barbara. Uh, I'm glad that I don't have to look at Brendan's ankles anymore. And it's thanks to you. So I definitely think that she is a nominee for the People's Champ. If you didn't see it, uh, Brendan Botcher posted on uh, Instagram that he had received a a package in the mail from a curling fan named Barbara Wilson. And it said, I'm an 88-year-old curling fan. And every time you slide out of the hack, I think that young man needs longer socks, which as as an old now, it's also the same thing I think every time that I see Brendan Botcher uh, <laughs> slide out of the hack. So she sent Brendan some socks and he's been wearing them. Barbara Wilson, you are another nominee for the People's Champ. Uh, Greg Smith, great seeing Greg Smith back at the Briar. Some great hot mic moments with Greg. Uh, some great social media content from his team. And uh, how do you not love Greg Smith? Uh, but my choice as the People's Champ is Wayne Madaw and what his team did throughout this week. I, I think Wayne Madaw is the People's Champ. Um, you know, 10 years from now, I probably won't be able to remember who won this briar, but I'm definitely going to remember Wayne Madaw and Team Glenn Howard's run at this briar. It was just, it was so wonderful to watch. Uh, and so wonderful to see him make shots those first nine games when they started out eight and one. So my choice is the people's champ is Wayne Madaw. Uh, Jonathan, who do you have? I like that. I think we put this on Twitter and see what the people say. Cause it is the people's champ award. Yes. I represent the people. So I'm, I'm saying <laughs> you are the people. This is how all I'm, dictatorships start, Ryan. Yes, that, that's right. This is a dictatorship. <laughs> this podcast is a dictatorship, Jonathan. <laughs> I represent the people and then I tell the people what their opinions are. That's what some podcasts do, but that's not what I'm doing here. I will put it on Twitter. I think they got nominated for different reasons. So, um, I think Mada is just dialing back the clock and, um, Hey, the one thing I really liked about watching Mada this week and I missed is how fast he is compared to modern curlers. <laughs> There's, there is one shot, I guess it was yesterday afternoon. So it's, it's Mada versus Gushu. The rest of the team is still talking about the shot. And Mada was already like sliding past the T line. Like he just, he's just like, I'm just playing the shot. And they're still arguing about this, this, this. He's like, I'm just playing the shot. And he makes it. He doesn't, he doesn't need a long, there's no like 20 second pre-shot routine. There's no like 10,000 discussions of things. Like that's the shot I'm playing and I'm playing it. And I just like that decisiveness and that pace of play. And um, it would be nice if some of the youngs watched a bit of Wayne Mada and imitated his style and didn't overthink everything. So I just like Wayne Mada. I do think Greg Smith is kind of like like he just has the best hot mic moments, right? There's there's well, I guess it was his third. He's like the I think it was the first draw or second draw last weekend, where it's an open hit for two. Like like it's it's a big. It's a <laughs> I remember shot. it. That's why I'm laughing. I'm like, I'm like like I would feel very comfortable throwing that shot, and I'm not Briar level by any stretch of the imagination, but I would you know especially on that ice. And he is, he is giving it his all on that line call. And the third just goes, relax. We have it. <laughs> sure enough, it's made, which is just like, you just see the intensity he's playing with, even on a pretty kind of routine shot. And then obviously the viral clip, which I think was, didn't ESPN or someone pick it up or who picked it? Someone like big picked up the viral clip of his like 
round the horn shot, which we'll get to in a second. But the the hot mic moment there is who cares? We're up seven one, right? We're just gonna down seven not play down seven one, right? So we're just gonna play that shot. So I I kind of like Greg Smith. Uh, I like that he's in the briar. He just brings enthusiasm, and sometimes sometimes some of the teams are just so you know, robotic, like they have to be to play at the top level, but it's a little less fun than, you know, Greg Smith just playing for pure joy, I'd say. That's right. Yeah, he is, he is pure joy. I think that's the best way to describe Greg. And it was it was TSN. He won, like, the TSN. You know, every night they you vote on one highlight versus the previous day's best highlight. And then the winner, like, keeps going on. I think he lasted a few days there. So that was that, I think that's what that was. All right, Jonathan, you have your shots of the week, and we have separated them out. We have best draw, best takeout, and then overall just the shot of the week, and it doesn't necessarily have to just fit into one of those two categories, just what was the best shot of the week. Best draw, my pick would be Scott McDonald's draw to the button to score one in nine against Quebec. And honestly, this one kind of also fits into one of the categories that you have later on, which was most interesting strategic decision because he chose to draw and go up to without. Yeah. Instead of just giving Quebec the one and going into 10 with hammer in a tie game. So, but thankfully for us, he chose not to do that because now we have this, this highlight of him drawing to where I think he had, I think Quebec actually had a piece of the button. So he had to get, more of the button than Quebec did in order to in order to score his one and it was a cold draw so to me that was the best uh that was the best one yeah you also put down Gushu a split for three versus Quebec I didn't see that game so you'll have to describe that to me it was a it was a pretty long split but yeah, you had a you had a rock pretty far out of the rings that he that he split and rolled into the house to get his three. Okay, my my two. All right, first one, I think it's not spectacular, but I think it's important, is Botcher's extra-end game winner in championship pool play versus Cooey, where, like, Cooey did everything he could. He basically forced Botcher to draw biting button at least, and he and Botcher covered the pin. It's an extra-end game winner. It's not... If, that, if that's the shot that Botcher plays to win the Briar... That's a highlight shot, right? Because it's a pressure draw. But uh, I think kind of in the weird, it kind of just came across as anticlimactic for whatever reason in the, in the context. But I think it was like a, a good pressure draw. The other one from that game, if we're going to talk splits and whatever, raises, was the one that nobody saw. So Cooey, it looked like they were going to be forced to draw for two. And then Cooey talks John Moe into like this raise split that was pretty difficult. They scores them a three. And honestly, I didn't see it. Johnny Moe didn't see it. I don't think the announcer saw it until Cooey pointed it out. So kind of for the vision, it also is a kind of high degree of difficulty. I'd say that might be another candidate too. Oh, this shot will come up later in the podcast. All right. <laughs> okay. So who you got? Who are you going to go with? I'll go with Botchers. It was to win a game. It was it was to win the game. If he misses, he's in a tiebreaker this morning and not in the semifinal. All right. I like McDonald. Okay. <laughs> All right. So next category. All right. Your next category that you have is best takeout. There's a few nominees here. 
One is from that same Nova Scotia Quebec game. Scott McDonald had a triple in ten that basically iced it against Quebec. Um, Cooey had a double for three against Saskatchewan that was pretty good. Madaw had a double to win against McEwen, and Botcher had a raise takeout to beat Laycock in the last game of the round robin. And it was, again, it was a huge victory for Alberta because they were sitting on two losses, I believe, at the time. And if you go to three losses, you're in trouble. And they were yeah. sitting on two at the time. And he this was, this was after that delay. They're far and away the last game on the ice. And he makes a pretty difficult shot to win the game against Steve Laycock. Yeah, I think... I think one of the game winners, I, I think the Madaw one I saw, I didn't see the Botcher Laycock one. So that was middle of the night. But um, yeah, I think either of those game winners for sure. All right. So you want to take Madaw and I'll take, uh, I'll take the Botcher shot. Sure. All right. Okay. So what, what's the shot of the week then? There's two. There's two nominees really for like the best shot of the week. And... For a long time, I thought it was going to be the Greg Smith shot around the horn to score two. I did not think that that would that that could be topped because it's one thing to go around the horn; it's another thing to go around the horn when the rocks are as far apart as they were. Yeah, but the Cooey race for three—that's the best shot of the the week, probably. That's the most it 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 was unique. A lot of people didn't see it. It requires such a high level of skill to make that shot. Whereas, I mean, even Greg Smith said that on his shot, they call it the push and pray, (laughs) which is another reason (laughs) Greg Smith is awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So because of that, I have, I thought all week I would, unlike the Scotties, I actually got a chance to think about your awards rather than having them thrust upon me 30 minutes before we recorded. So I had all week to think about Jonathan's awards and for the long t- longest time, I thought there's no way that Greg Smith is going to be topped. It's going to be Greg Smith's shot, but uh, it's got to be Cooey. Yeah, I I agree. Now, there's one other shot that's almost made that was like in the 10th end of that game, the shot that Cooey tried for the win, and it still worked for the tie, right? <laughs> was that like slash, I can't even describe it, angle slash yeah. run double. <laughs> For three, which again was like nobody saw it but Cooey. And like he almost he almost almost made it. He just grazes one stone on the way by. And if he makes that, that's probably that might be like an all-timer, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're giving it for like almost made shots, I I, I just at least want to give an honorable mention for like creativity. And he got something out of it. It wasn't a zero. It was like he still got the tie, but yeah, he might have almost won the game there. So I'll put that as honorable mention. Yeah, I think Cooey, although that's why I wanted to vote Cooey for the draw, so then I could at least give Greg Smith uh, the nod for a pretty nice round the horn shot. All right, so another split decision. I'll take Cooey. You can give shot of the week to Greg Smith. All right. All right, Jonathan, this one is yours. Most interesting strategic decision of the week. I think, so it's a, I wonder, almost want to call it, rename this prize best end. <laughs> So, because I did, I did this, I did this with the Scotties, and I think again, there's a really good game here. Saskatchewan 
versus Cooey. Third end, and I was actually texting you the entire end because it is, I mean, both sides were calling a very aggressive end and you knew something was cooking from early on. And it was, it was basically, if you want the actual individual decision, it's when wildcard calls the timeout and they decide to wrap another one around. And that basically sets up a Cooey shot later in the end for three, the double that you mentioned later on for three. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to get like too much into the weeds here, but I, I would recommend to anyone here just to go on the, the curling Canada feed and rewatch that end, like all the way through. Cause it's, you can learn a lot just by studying that end closely. And we'll put the link in the show notes, yeah. just like we did for the, the Scotties for most interesting strategic decision. We will, we will put the, the link to that video in the show notes. Best team to not advance. We didn't have any real stunners that didn't advance to the championship pool. And that's what that's what we mean here. Best team not to make it to the championship pool. So no no real stunners. Well, McEwen, I'd say. Or not. Or is that not a stunner? Because there was always going to be one. There was always going to yeah. be one of the top nine teams that we kind of consider to be the the professional teams. Mm-hmm. So like if McEwen had made it and Gunner hadn't, I wouldn't have been stunned. Yeah. Now if McEwen had made it and Cooey didn't, that's a completely different conversation. So I'm not, I'm not shocked that McEwen's not there just because one of those teams had to not make it. Um, they're probably, you know, in the terms of, not just looking at the Briar week in terms of the best overall team, not to make it to the championship pool. It's probably McEwen's team, but in terms of how you played throughout the week, I think it's James Grattan's team. And the reason for that is I looked at the teams that were four and four, those teams that were one win away from making at least a tiebreaker to get into the championship pool. And Grattan had the head to head against McEwen. He beat him in the, I think it was the first draw. So Grattan has head to head over McEwen and among the four and four teams, Grattan and McEwen uh, are tied for the best win because they both beat Jacobs. So really among the four and four teams, I think Grattan and McEwen were the only teams to beat a team that was in the championship pool. And so you have them. I guess other candidates might be Jamie Murphy, like Scott McDonald combo. Maybe maybe Team Fournier who kind of had some good games against the top teams, right? Didn't yeah. didn't pull off the win, but we're yeah. certainly in there. I think Grattan's team was the most consistent because they they had a one point loss to Botcher that I think was in an extra, and then I think they had another one point loss against a championship pool team. The only thing was the very last draw. They wait until then to have far and away their worst game of the tournament, and they drop kind of a stunner to Northwest Territories. Yeah. So otherwise they would have been in a tiebreaker against Jacobs. That would have been interesting for sure. Yep. I'm sure they're disappointed because I know I heard Grattan on the two girls in a game podcast saying that their goal was to make the championship pool this year. So I'm sure they're disappointed, but they had, I thought they had a great week and they were, they were the best team not to make it to the championship pool. So who you got? Yeah, I'll go with Grattan. So it's a unanimous decision this time. All right. Unanimous, unanimous. 
rookie of the year. We talked about this at the in our Briar preview that there's really not going to be there. There, there were two. There was Mickelson from UConn and Greg Skogie from Northwest Territories, and Skogie beats Mickelson in the head-to-head battle and then picks up another win against James Gretton in that last draw to play spoiler. Really, the only other rookie that I could think of to even nominate would be Wayne Madaz Tibia, but I'm going to give it to Greg Skogie. Who is the alternate for Team Cooey? <laughs> so here's the thing. I don't know. I, I would have to look up his name right now live it's, to it's tell Michael, you what it is, but it's a uh, guy. Michael Him. Yeah, the story was he like hadn't played in 30 years and so him getting to throw with uh when he got into a game with Cooey was the first time he'd gotten to play in like who knows how long. So he he's actually their chiropractor. And so I think what they did is they put him down as the alternate so they could bring the chiropractor into the bubble. So I think it was a creative workaround on the rules. This is why I love Kevin Cooey. This is <laughs> because that is how oh how we have advanced as a sport you have kevin cooey putting his chiropractor as an alternate to get him into the bubble at the briar and then if you read that book burned by the rock you have the story of like ed wernick wanting to bring his favorite stripper as their coach for the 1988 Calgary Olympic trials. So <laughs> it's, it's amazing how the sport has changed, Jonathan. It's, they're no longer bringing strippers. They're bringing chiropractors. That's, is that progress? Yes. Yes. All right. Game of the week. Who do you have? I have Cooey versus Botch in the championship pool. Went to an extra end. Lots of fantastic shots. Botcher makes a nice double to score four. Um, lots of lots of angles. Big comeback from Cooey. It had everything. I agree. Okay. And then what else we got? You have the best hot mic moment. For me, it's Greg Smith's Who Cares for Down 7-1 before making the Around the Horn for two. All right. There is another one yesterday's game Madaw versus Gushu and it's like the last end and Madaw calls a timeout <laughs> and Howard comes over the boards and his first line to to Wayne is so what do you want for lunch <laughs> <laughs> which you know was kind of awesome basically saying why are you calling me out here this game is over right so <laughs> <laughs> oh that's good stuff You've created a new one, a yes. new category here. Um, yes. So we have a, kind of just to go through what happened throughout the week. We have controversies, also known as somebody is wrong on Twitter. So <laughs> take us yes. through what happened in the week. Uh, we had a, gosh, we actually had a few in this briar. It's kind of crazy. It, it seems like every day we had a new thing for people to be mad about online. Hashtag mad online. Um, of course, we had Steve Laycock damaging the ice and causing a 45-minute delay. Yeah. Which, honestly, I was surprised by this. Kudos to Curling Twitter. No one got mad at Botcher for agreeing to like move to another sheet or whatever. Because how many times do we get mad at the non-offending team for pulling the stone when there's a burned rock? 
no one got mad at the not offending team in this situation, which, which I was surprised at. Yeah. I mean, so I guess that that's like a minor detail. I think the, the bigger one, so there's two parts to this. I think, and I've said this before, like the one thing about curling fans is they're highly moralistic as in they just, they just get very judgy about stuff. Like, there doesn't, and there's a lot of people on Twitter saying there needs to be some kind of new rule. There actually is a rule on ice damage in the rule book, and it's very simple. The first time you damage the ice, you get warned by the umpire. And the second time you damage the ice, you get tossed from the game. So my understanding is that uh, Laycock was, I'm sure he's definitely warned by the umpire, like given a formal warning. And I, I understand there's also a fine attached. And so that's the rule. Just move on. It happens. It's not the the smartest thing to do. That's that's the biggest reason why you shouldn't be slamming your broom is because you actually can damage the ice. And that's very annoying if there's a giant divot taken out of the ice. So that's why you shouldn't be doing it anyway, especially at your club where you don't have Greg Owasco to come back and fix it. Poor Greg Owasco. <laughs> yeah. But Kathy is sitting there giving the story of what happened, and she gives the minor detail that Greg Owasco had left for dinner and had to be called back to the ice. And I'm like, oh, I have been there. Yeah. You sit there. (laughs) All you want to do is go eat your reheated chicken parm after working all day, and you finally get to get to your break area and you've got your leftover chicken parm reheated and you look down and your intern is calling you and you know that nothing good has happened. Like I've been there. I've been there, Gregor Wasco. I feel your pain. I've also been on the intern side where it's like you're sitting there arguing over who has to call the boss and tell them that he has to come back to the office because you mess because someone has messed something up. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, here it it, ha- it was a mistake. It happened. Move on. I think. I think one thing: if you haven't been to a big event that's televised, one of the things that's interesting is a lot of the players. I won't name names, but just having watched some of these events, a lot of the big name players who have a reputation for not being broom slammers or cursing, all they do is they wait until <laughs> they wait until the break happens, and then I've seen them. Slam as loud as the next person, swear as loud as the next person. What gets you in trouble is if you're caught on air. So a lot of them will vent their frustration during the the TV break. So it's not, again, people get very moralistic. They like this team because they behave well. They don't like that team, whatever. I I think that's bad. I retweeted, there was a very, there was an excellent tweet from Team Holman where they're like, "Ah, Team Holman, we're told to smile more. (laughs) Yes, Steve Laycock, and they have like a picture of Hulk smashing something, right? It's a smile more. It was so great. (laughs) So So, good. So yeah, I mean, I think to my my frustration is like so called curling fans on Twitter who you know have to turn everything into who's a good human being, who's a bad human being. It's it's an emotional reaction, heat of the moment. There's rules to deal with it. It was dealt with. Move on is basically my take. Yeah, and. It happens to the guy that, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen Steve Laycock be emotional during a curling game. I don't know, positive or negative. And then they're like, oh yeah, it's Steve Laycock who slammed his broom. And I'm like, wait, the same Steve Laycock that I've been watching for the last decade is the one who broke the ice with his broom? <laughs> Maybe he's just not as practiced at broom slamming as somebody else. I don't know. It could be it. Uh, yeah. Just just remember Steve, pad side down. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, what do you think of the format? I actually don't mind it, to be honest. With the I'm 18 not, teams, yeah. I'm fine either way. I think I, I like pool play championship pool playoffs. I like, I like this format. Let's be real clear. We're not arguing about the, the pool play followed by the championship pool. We're specifically talking about 18 teams here. I think it's fine. I think if it makes the pro teams happy <laughs> by giving them a few more auto births, then why not? Like, and that, let's be clear. That's basically, basically they expanded because there weren't play downs this year. Right. And maybe it, it gives a few more TV teams in there, but well, like you would have had an interesting puzzle with, with basically if you didn't have playdowns this year, what do you do with Cooley? What do you do with McEwen? Right? Like you'd basically either have to have them in the wild card game, right? So by basically bringing them both in as wild card and bringing in bringing in Howard, you kind of created a deeper pool, which I think is fine. I like the playoff format. I I am against the page. I think it is a time suck. I think one versus two is boring. Too bad, Brad Gushu. Make your draw for against four next time. Uh, I like the top three going on. Uh, I actually don't like tiebreakers. I think get rid of the tiebreakers, record against the LSD. And this, like, there's no other sport. Like, does the NFL go, oh, because all these teams are tied at, at 10 and 6 or 9 and 7, we need to have three weeks of tiebreakers? No. So why are we doing this in curling? It's dumb. No tiebreakers. No page. No other sport does a page. Just win your games. Uh, wrong. Um, Australian rules football and the Australian National Rugby, Rugby League. Rugby League has um, basically the equivalent of a of a page playoff system. Yeah, but they have kangaroos. Are you going to let like a country with kangaroos tell you how to do things? No. Man, you. <laughs> what do you have against kangaroos, man? I don't know. Just don't like them. They got pouches and they hop around. I don't trust them. <laughs> Man. The point is no tiebreakers. Get rid of them. So I actually thought about this. Let me know what you think of this, Jonathan. You remember you remember relegation and yes. the little the little pre tournament mini tournament that they would have to determine which relegated team got in. Do that for the wild card. In terms of what? Bring in the best four teams that didn't win their provincial and have them do that on Thursday and Friday to determine the one wildcard team. Well, they already do the wildcard play-in game. Yeah, but expand it. Instead of having two wildcard teams, bring in two more, have it be four, have them play a little mini round robin with a championship game between them and televise it. The reason that TSN never showed that little pre- tournament field was they didn't want to show UConn versus Nunavut. They would definitely show the four best basically TV teams that didn't make, that didn't win um, their provincial play down. They would show that. Now you're expanding your coverage. You're expanding the number of draws that you have to sell more t- so that you can sell more tickets. Maybe I I didn't well, I didn't like the wild card playing game to be honest. Yeah, so exp- I don't like it either because it's just one game. You've got someone who shows up, they can play one game and then go home. Now with this, you're guaranteed three games. Uh, I like I I saw so my thing. Keep it how it is. Eighteen teams. 
maybe two wildcard teams. And then I kind of like a next gen team, like a U25. And maybe you do a U25 next gen tournament and you use that as a path in. I just have a note here. Ask me about blank ends. Jonathan, what is your opinion of blank ends? Uh, hashtag blank ends are beautiful. I like blank ends. I think, again, here's why people are wrong on Twitter. So we're not talking about, it's not 1988-89 with the Ryan Express where they're running the stones up and down for 10 ends, right? It's not, it, that's not what's happening with the modern blank. The, mo- the modern blank is a lot of stacking up with stones in the forefoot, and then one of the teams doesn't like the setup, and so they bail on either seconds, second stone or third's first stone. They spill a lot of br- granite. And they're basically, it's part of the strategy of the game. They're manipulating the game to try to get hammer and even ends or to try to protect the hammer to try and score their two or three. Um, I think it, it creates a lot of interesting late game situations. So to, bl- to ban blank ends, I think, would take some of the strategy out of curling. It would make curling dumber. Fans need to learn to appreciate defense as much as they appreciate offense. A blank end is just an up and down inning in baseball, right? It's just... It's just a three and a three and out, uh, you know, series in football. It's good defense, and we should appreciate good defense as much as good offense. Nobody is running it up and down. Like there, there's one game which I actually think is an accomplishment. Everyone else sees it as a sign of like the demise of curling, but I actually thought the Gunners won nothing game in a bond spiel a few years back was actually a significant accomplishment. Like go and try and do that if you if you can win a game, winning the hammer. Blanking everything, winning one nothing. I tap. I tip my cap to you. So I don't think blank ends are that big of a problem. I heard Jerry Gertz talk about that one nothing game. So Gunner was playing against Sean Geal, and Gunner had Gunner. Gunner started the game with hammer, and the first seven ends, Sean Geal came top eight basically. So Gunner is like the ultimate curling computer for a brain it's the it's like that guy howard letterer who is the 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 poker player that just automatically knows the percentages every single time i feel like gunner's the same way where he's like i'm starting with the hammer i have a 60 percent chance of winning and then he sees the stone go top eight he's like if i hit it i now have a 60.5 percent chance of winning so he hits it like if and this happened for seven ends. Jill would go top eight, and Gunner was like, I am increasing my chance of victory by 0.5% hit. And yes. th- that just happened until the eighth end. And then apparently the eighth end got um, got really messy, and Gunner actually had to make a good shot to win at the end. Is the story I heard from Jerry Gerds. Well, that sounds like a good game to me. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's if Jill, I suspect Jill thought that Gunner was a better team, which he is. He's higher ranked. And so... One strategy teams use when they're not when they're playing a team that's higher ranked is they'll play very defensively to try to keep the score close for as long as they can and then look for an opportunity. And and Geo basically tried to bring it down to the last end. That's yep. legit. It's not great TV viewing, but it wasn't a TV game either. So who cares? It's a strategy. Yep. Learn to appreciate strategies. That's what I say. Jonathan, what is your opinion of the tick shot? I, okay, this is interesting. So first of all, they just, on Kevin Palmer's new podcast, they had Ken Palm, Jerry Gertz, and Gunner for about 30 minutes discuss the tick shot. 
And I've never heard anyone get so excited about the tick shot as Gunnar gets on that podcast. Like he's just, I like, love Gunnar so much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, his enthusiasm, his enthusiasm and Greg Smith's enthusiasm would be like an enthusiasm off of some sort, but um, yeah, it's, it's great listening. So go listen to that. I don't know if we do need to ban the tick shot. And, and this is the, so here's the question I have, and it's, this is not an analytics question. It's a sports fandom question. Okay, in a tied or very close football game, a, a normal thing that happens is the team who has possession last marches down the field and kicks a 40-yard field goal, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we see that all the time. Does that mean the game is a bad game? I don't know. because So to my mind, basically, the Cooey-Botcher game was excellent, and then the last end was two ticks, and Cooey was doing basically using everything in his bag of tricks to shrink the scoring zone. And he managed to force Botcher to draw button against the stone biting forefoot, right? So he basically got the best result you could hope for. Botcher made it. To my mind, that's a bit like forcing a kicker to make a 40 or 42 yard field goal. So there's a chance he's going to miss, but someone at that level probably isn't going to miss, right? But yep. it wasn't the most exciting end to a very exciting game. But a lot of sports are like that, right? Yeah. And it's the same thing with teams making all of their free throws at the end of a basketball game where the other team really isn't going to be able to come back because the other team is making their free throws. So I guess the question is, do we want to make curling such a gimmicky event where the team always has to try a double run triple on the last shot? No, I agree with you. So my argument against it is why are we punishing teams? One, for developing a skill on the tick shot is a skill. And then why are we punishing teams for controlling the game for the first seven to nine ends? And then we're punishing them arbitrarily. And just because it's the last end, it's like, well, you've, you've been in control this whole time, but that's not, it's not exciting TV that you've been in control and you've uh, shown that you're a better team than this team. So we're going to change up the rules here at the end to give an advantage to the other team uh, so that you cannot utilize this skill that you have developed that will basically end the game after you have controlled the game for the first, however, however long. Yeah. And so for me, okay, the most boring game of the week was the Mida Gushu game of the ones I watched, right? And it, basically, Gushu got a 4 1 lead. They are absolutely deadly when they have control. And it ended up being 8 3. It went the distance, but Mida, like, basically never had a shot. The rest of the game, Gushu was just rock positioning and, and taking away anything and basically, for, basically forced to, forced to the rest of the way, right? Or blank. And that, it was a boring game. There was no drama to it. There weren't many blanks. Um, I'm not even sure if there were any blanks, but it was basically boring curling. And to me, that's way more boring than a team in a close one nothing battle uh, just blanking it out, right? So I guess my point's this, is that blanks in and of themselves are not necessarily boring. I think fans need to appreciate why teams are blanking and what the strategic implications are. Because I, I think a team trying to blank late in the game to try to get themselves last shot, that can be quite interesting because the other team's going to try to take that away. And I also think that the tick shot does make the final bit easier 
it may get to the point where if a team's got good enough to tick all the way through and win a game one nothing again, then we obviously have to look at stuff. But I think just because you don't like a certain kind of shot or a certain kind of strategy, we don't need to rewrite curling. So it's always like, you know, 15 rocks in play and then try a, try a triple raise double every single end. I think, I think that can also get ridiculous too. Well, Gunnar had a good point. If you make the tick shot, odds are it's not going to be a low-scoring end or an end with nothing nothing in the house because if you make the tick shot, all of a sudden, there's two corner guards. Yeah. I think, I actually think, Holman was doing a bit of this and has kind of moved away from it. And a, a few other teams have kind of tried variations of this in recent years. I'm curious if teams start using the tick shot more for offense from the get-go to basically use the tick to set up double corner guards and bring play back towards the wings. That's what Scott McDonald's Ontario team does. Yeah. You see him do it. Um, I think Jacobs, Jacobs has started doing it. Right. So I, I'm wondering if that's the evolution. And then what's interesting is it's not necessarily defensive. It's bringing play more over to the wings and then teams are gonna have to figure out a better counter to it. So I, I'm a, I think banning the tick shot outright might be a bit dangerous. The thing they talked about in the pod was just like ninth and tenth end. I will I will go back to my pounding on the table. I want to see a bond spiel try the ELO ending, where rather than try to run a team out of score points, you set a point target after six. So you just add two points to the highest the, the highest total and say that's how many points you have to score. And I think that changes the incentive structure where teams are thinking about how do I score to win the game rather than how do I defend a lead, if that makes sense? So that, that's my kind of thing that I've been ha- hammering on. I know you're a skeptic, but I think that might be a different way to handle the, the problem. And the Elam ending comes from basketball, where after after a certain point of time in the fourth quarter, they they set a, a point total. And it's basically whichever team's ahead, it's like 10 points. Is it something like that? It can vary. Like last year in the All-Star game, they did 23 to honor Kobe Bryant, right? But, 24. Uh, 24, whatever. 24. 23 is Jordan. Um, so, yeah, you can set it whatever. My thinking is try two after end six. And that actually then, the other advantage of that is it shuts up the eight end versus 10 end debate because you'll probably finish the game. If you can't score two points in four ends, you shouldn't be curling. So, <laughs> so the game could be over in anywhere between seven and 10 ends, right? So, PSN's not going to like that. Why not? Because they have a certain a time block that they've that they've got. Yeah, so they get like uh, whatever they do something else. They do trick shots at the end. And TV doesn't like not knowing what their what their window is going to be. Isn't that the case for like every sport though? Like, doesn't basketball have erratic endings? I mean, you could have games go five overtimes, but that's extremely rare. But is it the same just for the time of the game or is everything just set in the basketball game for how many advertising slots you have? Yeah. It is? Yeah, you know how many you know how many slots you have. Okay. What about football where it's like erratic time length? No, you know how many breaks you've got. Yeah. That's why the honestly, that's why the two minute warning exists, Jonathan. The two minute warning does not exist um to help either of the teams, the two minute warning exists to get a TV break in there. Oh, well, we could just have a two minute warning and curling. (laughs) 
Okay. That's pretty, you mean, you mean the end of every end? <laughs> just add, if it's about adding advertising, just have like, just build in a break after the sixth end, you build in a break between second stones and third stones. And you just go, okay, that's, that's where it's like, there's like a team timeout where both teams got to meet with their coach and talk for free. Okay. Or you expand the timeout slot. And so you can use that timeout as when you can go to ads. But that's right. the most that's the most interesting thing about curling is when the coach comes out and they talk about strategy for a minute and a half. Yeah, they can just play it back the same way they do in basketball, where they, the coach is like, "Do this curl there, pop out," <laughs> and no one understands what the hell they're saying. But everyone's like, go "Oh around, yeah, it's a really go good around play." The screen. <laughs> go around the screen, pop out. All right, you then brought up the analyst. All right, you brought up the Gushu Madaw game. Um, and that brings us to texturing stones, which was another mini controversy yesterday. Cause I guess they didn't tell the teams that they textured the stones and it was just whoever asked the ice makers if the stones had been textured or not, were told that they'd been textured. And then even then Scott Howard said on Twitter that they didn't get a clear answer the first time that they asked as to whether or not the stones had been textured. So let's get this, let's get one thing straight. The... Controversy should not be whether or not the stones were textured. The controversy should be about the communication because texturing stones happens all the time. Uh, okay, I've got a few. I've got a few takes here. Number one, <laughs> the Howards arguing about rocks at a briar. That's as old as the granite we're playing with. Like, if you go go listen to some of Kevin Palmer's like. Uh, Legends of Curling podcast about the Briars in 93, 94, and there were all kinds of crazy rock controversies. And the Howards are just like obsessive about rocks. Like they're just like, they match them. They're hyper obsessive about who throws what one. If you ever listen to them, probably more than any team, they've got like some interesting number combo. Each player has got a cutter and a straight one. They're like, they're just super obsessive about it. So A, them getting upset about how Curling Canada handles the stones is not new. Uh, so that, that part, I'm kind of like, okay, the Howards are upset about stones. The part about the texturing, normally it's done at the start of the event and then it's let to play out. So I, the question is, why were they textured when they were? Um, and so I can think of a couple of reasons. The, the most obvious one is because this event's so long and they want those curling stones to be nice and swingy for Sunday for a kind of TV effect. They probably decided to texture them yesterday to get them two games to break in and then look good afterwards. And in yesterday's games, you were getting like six and a half feet of curl. So they were super swingy. Um, so that's probably why they did it. I guess the question is, at what point are we prioritizing the kind of TV aesthetics of the game for the final over competitive fairness? That's the kind of first issue. The second issue, I think, on, on this, I think Scott Howard's completely right. If you're going to change anything about the playing surface, then the head, the, the the person who's actually called the technical director in WCF play, who's basically above the head umpire, it's kind of incumbent on that person to make sure that every team is notified about the change. And then I think they have to build in some kind of practice session if they're going to do that. And there, there's plenty of ice in the mornings. It was only a two-game day. So you just give every team 15 to 20 minutes to play, to practice with each of the sets of stones they'll be using that day so they can rematch them and check their stone, their rock book, and then the problem's solved. 
So there is something there about practice time, chance to match rocks and communication that we don't, we just don't know because we don't see through TV what's going on at the event, but that's the way you handle that problem. And to be clear about what Glenn Howard was mad about in terms of not knowing that the rocks had been textured, it was, they were mainly upset because it affected their draw to the button because they didn't know the rocks had been textured. They weren't, they weren't known, they weren't notified until after the first practice and they lost the draw to the button to give Gushu hammer. Gushu goes out, scores two in the first end forces, scores another two. He's up four one. The game's basically against Brad Gushu. You're not coming back from down four one or very rarely you're coming back from down four one against Brad Gushu. But that uh, I think that that was the main thing he was upset about was them not knowing um, had an impact. He said he was very clear to state that it had an impact on their draw to the button for the game against Gushu. Not it did not have an impact on the game itself. Yeah, so they probably I, we, we didn't see what the draw to the button was, but if one of them overcur like so they didn't they didn't you, come close. They they had one of the best DSCs draw shot challenge scores the whole week leading up and then apparently their score against Gushu for the game leading up for leading up to against Gushu was apparently just not good at all. Yeah, so they just didn't know. And so the question is was it line or it does it can when they texture the stones change the speed a little bit too. So but normally it's how it curls or breaks and that can affect the line because if you're doing draw to the pin you could throw a perfect T line, but if it over curls by two feet, you're still off by two feet, right? Mm-hmm. Which is totally possible on this ice. So I I didn't see exactly what happened with the, the well, we didn't because they don't show that on TSN, but um, that can definitely have an impact. And hammer hammer does matter, right? Oh yeah, especially again, yeah. Um, somebody said it was even Gunner because I, I, I imagine Gunner is able to just calculate this in his head and didn't have to go and find it, but he had the exact percentage on, um, on who he had the exact winning percentage for teams starting with hammer and it was high. I imagine that Gunner just did that math in his head. <laughs> it's 60, 40, basically. It was, a, it was a little higher than that. It was a little higher. It was a little higher than that. For this like sixty one point five or something. Yeah, Gunner knew down to the percent, down to the decimal point, what it was. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, the only other thing, and to me, it wasn't even a controversy. It was you had a really great moment where Greg Smith played John Epping, and then they posed for a photo with, um with the LGBT pride flag afterwards and everyone that I saw just saw it for what it was, which was a, a, a great moment. And apparently there was one person who replied to Greg Smith and John Epping that was upset that they had done this. And thankfully they were drowned out by the rest of curling fans. What's great about curling fans is, you know, we, as a as a species, especially as a species on Twitter, we get mad over very very little things, but we celebrate the big things. And this was a big thing, and everyone saw it as a big thing that mattered and was important and was great, except for one person um, who thought it wasn't great. And Matt Sussman said it said it much better than I ever cur- could as to 
why this was such a great thing, go and read his um, go and read his newsletter. It's at curling.substack.com. Uh, definitely go read that. You can also Google the hand that cradles the rock uh, to find it. Uh, but he had a great newsletter about why this was such a great moment and why it mattered. And really it comes down to a discussion we had a couple of weeks ago on this podcast with the folks from the Global Initiative for DEI and Curling. Um, that representation matters, and that's really why this was important, and it's why it was it's why it was so great. Yeah, I agree. It was a big moment. Um, I don't know. Again, someone being wrong on Twitter isn't surprising, <laughs> right? So, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad the person was ratioed out, but also there's a like basically the first thing I learned on Twitter is ignore. You actually told me that. Ignore the people in your mentions because anything you tweet, you might get some rando saying something and you basically have to mute your mentions and ignore dumb comments. Fortunately, that doesn't happen to us because all of you who listen to us are extremely smart and uh, extremely um, extremely balanced, extremely well-balanced people. So thank you all for, for not, being, not being insane. And flooding us with with comments and taking like one sentence that we say and having it disregard everything else that we say during the hour that we talk. So thank you all. <laughs> hot takes. You have Brian. hot. All right. Yeah. You told me you have hot takes. As a all right. What what hot takes do you have after watching a week's worth of Briar? All right. Last two years, the top four teams of the Briar have been Cooey, Botcher, Dunstone, and I'd say Gushu. Gushu didn't get through this time, but he was probably the bubble team. He's only um, won three of the last four Briars. Yeah. So if I were a betting person, and I'm not, but if I were, I'd put the odds at 80% that Canada's men's Olympic team will be one of those four. I think you're wrong. You think I'm wrong? So what do you have? Like 95%. 95%. So why do you have it at 95%? Who else is going to beat them? Uh, okay. So the counter argument, it's not analytics. It's superstition. I'll admit that. But if you look at the history of the Canadian Olympic men's trial, 1998, Mike Harris upset win. 2002, Kevin Martin favorite wins. 2006, it's the no chance Gushu Russ Howard team that wins. 2010, it's Kevin Martin winning. 2014, it's Brad Jacobs who had to come through the pretrial and was seen as an upset to win it. And then in 2018, it's Kevin Cooley who probably dominated the previous <laughs> quad. So 2022, it's going to be an upset team if you follow that pattern. You buy that? No. No? You don't have Jamie Murphy winning the Olympic trials. It's just, and it's because even more so than even four years ago, you have the top teams consolidating talent. Yeah. Like even Dunstone's team, they, they made it to the playoffs. They made it to the page one, two game and couldn't quite get there. And what did they do? They didn't, they didn't hold you know, they didn't stand pat. They went out and added the other good skip in Saskatchewan. There are, there are plenty of good teams and good skips in Saskatchewan. They added the other top level slam level skip in Saskatchewan as to play second for them. Yeah. So, I mean, the others, Jacobs, I guess, 
the the CTRS rankings are a mess, so I'm just dialing back to pre-pandemic. But pre-pandemic, your rankings heading into the briar, so basically before everything got locked down last March, the rankings were Jacobs, Epping, Gushu, McEwen, Botcher, Cooey, Gunner, Dunstone. That's top eight. Then at last year's briar, massive drop-off, right? From there, then it was like number 20 was Jamie Murphy, 23 Laycock, 24 Cortan. Somewhere in there would have been Fournier, Bedard. Grattan? Where did that come from, man? For what? James Grattan. Grattan. James Grattan. Sorry. So uh, <laughs> He's only been going to the Briar for 30 years, man. It's like you did that one on purpose. <laughs> no, you even said the name correctly lot. earlier in the podcast. I'm leaving I'm this in, off. by the way. I'm not editing this out. I'm leaving this in. I'm finally mad at you for how you mispronounce names. (laughs) All right. Um, So my my point is massive drop-off outside of those top eight, right? And what's interesting is if you go by CTRS rankings, Epping and Jacobs are higher ranked, but when it comes to the big events, they're not the ones punching through. It's been Botcher, Cooey. Gushu and Dunstone the last two years. Okay, so explain big events because you say that plural, where when Epping and Jacobs do really well at the Canada Cup and at the Slams, and for the yeah. most part are contending for playoffs at the Briar, but they haven't been winning Briars. So when you say big events plural, you know, they're doing great at the events that aren't the Briar. So what you're really talking about here is the Briar, is what you're talking about. And the trials. About. When there's, when there's a chance to go to an international event on the line, Kevin Cooey's who you want, right? And what's hey. interesting is Cooey's record at the Slams is not that great. But Cooey's record in playoffs at Briars and Trials is phenomenal. And Gushu's probably just a step, slight, step slightly below him. Yeah, but the Trials is once every four years. And but, Jacobs, so has won, Jacobs, Jacobs has won a pre-Trials and a Trials. Yeah, my point's this, is that there's a big difference between an event that you play once a month, even if the field strength of field's the same, which just pays out $25,000 Canadian in cash, and something where if you win it, you're winning a couple hundred thousand dollars, which is what the Briar pays out, plus all the sponsorship, plus the opportunity to go represent internationally. That's just so much more pressure. And I don't think the Canada Cup or the Slam, while they recreate the strength of field, capture the pressure of winning a big event, right? Teams don't react the same way when they win a slam to when they win a briar. Right? Except Just Matt watch Dunstone. the celebrations. Maybe except Matt Dunstone, but we haven't seen Matt Dunstone win a briar, right? I'm pretty sure he'll he's not gonna trade his slam for a briar if he wins the briar today, right? No, probably not. <laughs> right? <laughs> like he would if I went to him right now and said, I guarantee you win the briar today, but you gotta give up that slam you won. I can make that happen. He'd make that trade in a heartbeat, right? And I know it and he knows it. So when you talk about big event, when you talk about big events, you're talking about five curling tournaments during a quad, really four. Yeah, yeah. But the, what else is there? The other stuff's good. I'm not saying oh, only winning a slam is significant, but you get six bites at the apple a year, right? Like there's a there's a pressure of you got to wait till next year, or you got to wait next four years to do this thing, and everyone's peaking. Okay, I'm not convinced that everyone shows up at every slam looking to win 
looking to win. They're not building their season around that. If they win it, great, but I don't think that many teams do. They may be points chasing and thinking, how do we acquire points? The, the other big difference is when you're out there points chasing, what you're really trying to do is qualify and then you're kind of in the money and then you're happy. You do kind of depends on how you do on Sunday. Right. But you'll take your quarterfinal, the points that you get with it. And if you don't go beyond that, you don't go beyond it. It's a different setup. It's a different format. And really during the last quad. So the events you're talking about, Jonathan, during the last quad, two teams have won them. Two skips yeah. have won them. Yeah. It's Gushu and Kui. And to, in some ways it looks a lot like run into 2010, where it was basically Howard Martin, and everyone knew it was going to be one of those two teams, and the final came down to that. So it could, I mean, if you told me Gushu Kui, I wouldn't be surprised. So if I get, so you you put four teams in there. You put Gushu, Kui, Botcher, and Dunstone. If I gave you Gushu and Kui versus the field, who would you take as the Canadian men's Olympic team? Gushu Kui, for sure. Okay. Although I'd put it 70%. 10% Dunstone Botcher, 20% the field. Okay. Like if McEwen showed up, because like, McEwen had a good run last time. If McEwen gets it together, they're fully capable of having a good week and winning, right? If they, like, like if they, they lost, McEwen lost last, the last quad final. Like he kind of going in, it was like, are they together? Aren't they? They've been shaky the second part of the quad. They had a good week, took Kui down to the last shot. A team like them or Jacobs or Epping, I'm not surprised if they're playing on Sunday at the Canadian Olympic trials, but I just don't think they're favorites. I wouldn't put money on them to win it right now. The way I know definitely not. Man, it's yeah, it's going to be wild. Yeah. And I think that then the question is why are those other teams doing very well at accumulating points, but aren't, but I guess by those other teams, I mean, Jacobs, Epping, McEwen, maybe Gunner. Although I think Gunner's not quite there yet, right? Why are they not showing up and in the big events these days? What's what's holding them back? What's holding Gunner back? Well, let's just set it, let's separate Gunner. I think Gunner's basically bubble pro team. I'd say he's basically eighth, ninth best team in Canada. Yeah, I right? agree with Maybe that. Maybe thirteenth, but like he's kind of like on his rankings in Canada, he's eighth, ninth best can get through the the pool play, get to the championship round, meets the big boys and kind of, you know, hits his ceiling at the moment. Um, Is he the best team in Manitoba right now? Maybe. There's a case for it. <laughs> I mean, he beat McEwen last year and he did better. He beat McEwen last year in the playdowns and did better at the Briar this year. So there's a there's an argument there. It's not It's not the lock that it was for McEwen two years ago, I'd say. What do you think? If we're talking right now, the Sunday of the Briar, yeah, I would say that Gunner's the best team in Manitoba. Now, could that change after the two GSOC events that are going to be played later during the bubble? Yeah, that could absolutely change then. Yeah. I Okay. So let's... I, I think a few team shuffles are likely still. I mean, I'm sure it'll... I'm sure it'll happen. I'm going back to the conversation we had after the Scotty is I don't think there's anyone you can pick up that all of a sudden you've got a shot at actually dethroning one of those teams that's established and playing well. Yeah, I think, I think the two big moves may have already been make, made, right? That 
the big one I think was Johnny Mo being picked up by Cooey. Mm-hmm. That's clearly been an upgrade that works. And Kirk Myers being picked up by Dunstone. I think mm-hmm. that was, that's a move that works. And hit, I mean, shout out to his team chemistry. He, he's, he's gone from being a skip to being a second, but he was, he's like a fantastic glue guy all week. Like he's super positive, you know, fitting in well, not trying to overrule the skip and kind of doing the, the little things well. So he was a good pickup, I'd say. Yeah, he know, he knows the role, but it's sometimes tough to go from skipping to to playing front end, right? Especially if you're used to kind of having a lot of control, you're, you're giving up a lot of that and got to defer to the game the skip wants to call. Yeah, he just I don't know. Myers just seems like a a guy that just has no ego. So I, I didn't yeah. think that that was going to be an issue at any when they when they picked him up and added him at second. I didn't think that was going to be an issue at all. I thought that he did nothing but add to that team. And I think he brought kind of an easygoing mentality that that team probably needed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he kind of. It's a good to have someone who's a bit mellow when you have some high intensity players in the back end. Okay, and Jonathan, obviously, we will do a men's worlds preview coming up, but just real quick, um, Brendan Botcher's. What do you think is going to happen for their team at Worlds? I mean, they'll be one of the favorites. I, I think the men's worlds is pretty deep this year i was just you know looking at the lineup i'd say five teams have a decent shot at winning it all uh, obviously botcher is going to be one of them uh, but you know you've got all the other powerhouses have kind of punched a ticket too again i think there's an interesting question of what kind of season different teams have had right because it seems like switzerland's had some kind of a curling season uh Sweden never really locked down, but it doesn't really seem like a Dean toured all that much, but he's probably been on the ice practicing every day. And the Scottish teams have all been training in the National Curling Academy. That never mm-hmm. really shut down. So they've, they've been doing kind of in-house competitions, which is a kind of pretty hard high level. So it's a different kind of season from what we're used to, and the preparation will be a bit uneven, I think. So that'll be interesting to see. I actually, I wonder what what kind of preparation has the Schuster rink had? You know, I mean they've, I mean basically they've been scrimmaging other U.S. high performance teams at the Four Seasons rink, basically. I think at Duluth. Okay, so just kind of yeah, sticking sticking close to home. So you know, it's there's preparation, but it's not a normal season of preparation. So I think, I think it'll be similar to what we've seen already with, with bubble play teams won't be as sharp. Um, teams that stuck together probably have a bit of an advantage as we've seen kind of the Briar Scotties opposed to new lineups. I, I do think it favors slightly more defensive teams too, you know, just because mm-hmm. the yeah, rock we'll, positioning we'll... thing, the touch teams kind of, it's a little trickier to get that back. And it looks like the stats for both the men's and women's were about 5% lower on average, so about a shot a game less per player compared to last year. Okay. Well, we will dive into that when we do our world's preview. Uh, Everybody enjoy the Canadian Mixed Doubles Championship. We will not be doing a preview of that, but enjoy it if you can find a stream of it. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. 
can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.